Hello, I'm Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today I'm going to tell Montana about the Scottsboro Boys incident. I don't think I've heard of this. This might be new to me. But first, Montana, what are we drinking? Uh, you said it was a pick your poison. So I, I picked up uh, two cases of the... <laughs> you really picked your poison. <laughs> uh, it was when I was in Alabama. Calm down. Uh, it's stuff I can't get up here. It was uh, Cahaba Brewings, Cahaba Blonde, but they put strawberries in it and it's pretty good. So what are you drinking? I have a local as well. It's the Straight to Ale, which is a local brewery in Huntsville. And it is called Ricky Tiki Mango Infused Double IPA. Because this one's got a lot going on. And I wanted a one and done. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. Well, actually, we got it. My uh, So my husband and I were uh, headed home after... Uh, a birthday gathering and I was like you know I just want to have a beer on our back porch can we just get some beers so he got some that he liked I picked this one I was like I'll try it we sat on our back porch and drank beers and just talked about like what we want to do with the house and stuff it was really nice even with the kids in the house we were just hanging out on the porch so it ended up being good this is the one I had picked so I was like I'll just get some more of that yeah well I will say you do have a nice back porch so I do those now that I've seen it, I'm also sad because you moved your camera and now I can't see the pretty painting in the background that just says fuck on it. <laughs> Thanks, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at it when I was working in there last okay. week and I sent uh, a snap to everybody. <laughs> just this pretty she, flower picture and it says she painted fuck. it and she said, do you want it? I said, yes, I want it. Thank you. And now it has a prominent place my room yeah. safe from the cats oh my god how's my boy oh <sighs> your boy is a mess as per usual i can't sit in this chair it's something about this station because if i sit in this chair getting my doing my makeup before i have to go into the office he's trying to jump in my lap so something about right here because he doesn't do it when i'm at my normal desk so i guess you convinced him that this was the place to be bothering the humans so thanks for yeah that. it's all your fault well he saw me in there like the first day and he meow, 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 all around. And then finally I let him in my lap and he settled for a while and then he'd try to jump on my keyboard. Mm -hmm. So I put him down and it was like every That's hour it. after that. Hey, what you, are you ruined doing? it. Can I, can I get in your lap? Hey, hey, what's up? Best friend. I, I accept pets. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That's the one thing I will say about my cats. My cats are definitely like all about their people. So they're very social and they will join the room. That's why I have to lock my door. We have a kitty corner is what it's called. So the corner of the door folds up so that it's open so the cats can come in and out. And um, I have to lock it whenever I record because otherwise the cats are yeah. moving around and looking and looking at me like, hey, can I get in your lap? So I'm catless I right now. I couldn't figure out how to get that kitty corner shut when I was working in there. I know there some... you almost broke it. I know. Uh, well, I was on a call. I'll, I'll had to bend it back into place. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't think I'd bend it out of shape. I just thought I couldn't get it, you know, to close. There's a but I was, I was on a call and Dum uh, Dum kept coming in there and trying to open the drawers on the side of your bed. Mm -hmm. But when he does it, he bangs really loud. Everything people, he does is loud. He was the yeah. one banging into the door while we were recording last time. Yeah. So people are like, what is that noise? And I was like, it's fine. It's a cat. And I was like trying to grab him. And you know how he is when you're trying to get him out of something. He doesn't mm -hmm. like it. And so he's like all aggressive. So I toss him out. But then there's the hole in the door. And <laughs> so I like walk right back in. I'm like talking on a, a conference call and I'm holding my hand over the door and he's trying to bite it like mm. over the hole in the door. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, you could have just put the dog door dog beds in front of that and that would have walked. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> it's fine. The first time we needed to close the door um, and and lock it closed to keep the cats out, he goes he goes to do the because you have to like pull it out and then fold it down and push it back in and it locks it in place so that way it doesn't go back and forth. Well, it didn't lock because I guess one of the things that locks it was bent. And he was like, "What?" He kept trying it over and over and over and it wasn't working. And I said, "I bet Montana needed to lock it and didn't know how and." And that happened. And yeah, he looked at it the next morning. He was just looking at it and struggling. Had to be somebody who didn't know how to use it. I said, it was Montana. She was the one in this room trying to get away from our cats. Why would you think it was anybody else? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know I had been it. I'm sorry. I just like, I was, I was so frustrated. Like a locking mechanism, I guess. And however, because I tried to do the same thing. He didn't show me until I had to ask him. But um there's a locking mechanism, so you have to, like, do it in a very – the viewers can't see me, but you have to do it in a very specific way, um, and anything else, it'll break it or bend it. So, it's fine. He yeah. got it working. He did it for well, me just before I started um, recording. I was like, okay, did you get it to work? He said, yeah. And now it bent. Like, instead of the door being straight, there's this little cockeyed part. I'm always <laughs> with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always and now I get to remember it every time. Okay, well, well we we're we're chit chatting before. Um, I'm kind of delaying getting into this case, but um, are you ready? Is there anything else you wanted to go over? Um, I'm probably gonna cry. Maybe. How bad is it? I mean, it's all. There's bad. just a lot going on. Um. I'm surprised you haven't heard of it, but I bet when I start going into some of the details, it's going to be familiar uh, mm -hmm. because it's a very, it, it was a very famous case at the time um, and since, honestly. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely some places that it, it's possible. You'll be yeah. That's well, not my intent, I'm, but I'm it's, it's a case that I've been wanting to cover for a while. I'm feeling really teary right now because my boy's not here. And oh, no. I, I want him home. He's probably in pain. He's all by himself. He's got a stupid cone on his head. Ugh. I know. So, but he's bear the with best me. possible hand. Yeah, I know. Let's get into it. If I cry, I'll mute my mic. All right. How about that? All right. Uh, cheers to uh, cheers. this one. I'm going to need it. All right. So, like I said, this is a case I've wanted to cover for some time, but I didn't know when I was going to be able to. It's loaded with controversy, and there's a lot of thoughts and feelings that I went through, and I know you're going to go through as I go through the story. And, you know, I said on the offhand chance that Montana hasn't heard of it, get ready. Uh, there's twists and turns as we go through this, and like I said, several controversial topics. And I'm sure I will be saying more than once, I'll get to that when you start talking because <laughs> you'll be interrupting me right before I get to something. So I know that's, it's how, it's how I work. I'm like, but wait, what, but what about this? But what about this? <laughs> it's a part uh, of the ADHD. Okay. I need answers right now. <laughs> yeah, that is actually, that makes sense. All right. So I bear with me too, because I wrote, I went through these notes and I spent five, like five hours putting these notes together and I did not have a chance to read back through them like I normally do before we jumped in. So I uh, might have some surprises where I have to pause and really read what I wrote to figure out what I'm trying to say. But to start, nine African-American boys were accused of raping two white women on a freight train in Alabama on March 25th, 1931. I haven't heard this. Their names were Haywood Patterson, Olin Montgomery, Clarence Norris, Willie Robertson, Andy Wright, Ozzie Powell, Eugene Williams, Charlie Weems, and Roy Wright. These nine young men would be known as the Scottsboro Boys as the cases were tried in Scottsboro, Alabama. Only four of the young men knew each other before the incident. All right, I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you. I know that they're called the Scottsboro Boys, but we're not going to title it that. Boys okay. was kind of like a derogatory like way to refer to black men. I think I said the Scottsboro Boys incident because that's what they were okay, referred yeah. to as. And that's but why it's called the incident. You'll figure it out. Just right out the gate. <laughs> yeah. So here's the story. Two white women, Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, were on the train with a few white men when nine black youths 
came upon them and ejected the white boys and raped the two young women. Once the train had stopped, the nine young men were immediately arrested and, quote, were taken to the jail in Scottsboro, but had to be removed under the protection of 100 National Guardsmen when a mob threatened to lynch them. So they've only been arrested. They haven't had any kind of due process whatsoever at that point. Just keep that in mind. This kind of reminds me of Black Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. They were held some 60 miles away and delivered to Scottsboro the morning of April 6th for their trials, end quote. And that was from ACLU.org. In case you didn't notice, that was a bit quick. It was less than a week after the arrest that the grand jury indicted the nine and the trial was set for April 6th. All of this occurred in less than two weeks. That's incredible. Like, they're already going on trial. Their defense attorney didn't have enough time to do anything. No, you're telling legally, me I don't think legally you could even do that because they're, the defense attorney has to have a certain number of days to be able to review the evidence, and they didn't even have it all together. But again, yeah. this is 1931. Well, I was going to say, I can't believe the prosecution setting the stage to get their their case together. But, you know, when you make up shit, it's pretty easy to uh, come up with stuff. The trial <laughs> was quite a spectacle with around 10,000 people trying to be present when the normal population for the entire town was 2,000. By day two of the trials, two convictions had already been handed down for Charlie Weems and Clarence Norris. Two days later, eight of the nine had been convicted and sentenced to death, and their executions were scheduled for July 10th. The ninth to stand trial had a jury that deadlocked due to the fact that they were holding out for the death penalty, and the prosecutors had only requested life imprisonment due to his age. 14 this is like when you have a jury like that literally your jury's like we're holding out for a stronger conviction a death sentence you have bias on that jury keep in mind what was the charge raping two young women and they are sentencing wanting to sentence nine but they've already sentenced eight to death Whereas we've covered yeah. cases where they get convicted of rape and they're out in six months. Or we have some cases where... Tell me um, where there's a difference I mean, in really the two cases. Rapes a woman behind a dumpster and then he gets off with nothing because he's a good swimmer. Um, but mm-hmm. he was white and so the big difference again, is there. Again, I said there's going to be a lot of controversial topics. This is going to bring about some feelings. It did with me. All right. So immediately following the trials, George Mayer of the International Labor Defense, a communist, it says a communist linked legal defense organization, sent a telegram to the Alabama governor at the time, Benjamin M. Miller, saying that the young men had been framed and were victims of a, quote, legal lynching. Mayer demanded a stay of execution, promising to file a motion for a new trial or appeal. The ACLU was not initially involved, but as the case attracted increasing attention, the ACLU dispatched Hollis Ransdell, a young Columbia-educated journalist, to take a closer look. Ransdell produced a detailed and nuanced report. It challenged the tale of the two white mill girls from Huntsville, Alabama, Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, 21 and 17, respectively, who had dressed up in overalls and hoboed their way by freight train to Chattanooga, Tennessee, supposedly to seek work. And that was all directly from the ACLU site. And I'm I'm not surprised that, that the ACLU like stepped in uh, late. I'm surprised it took as long as it did, honestly. Well, I'm not. I think, the AC- I think the ACLU does a lot of great things, but I think some of us, I think I think sometimes they're a little late on the draw. Well, it could have cost these boys their lives. Yeah. All right. So now we've gone over the very high overview of the case now let's look at the two victims in the case victims victoria price was born january 20th 1908 per her grave but the listing on the site and a picture of a grave or a headstone next to her mother's headstone says 1910 and a news article reporting her death initially said she was 77 at death meaning she was actually born in 1905 so Somewhere between 1905 and 1910. Um, Look, the early make of that what you will. 
it, make up that what you will. Either a reporter was really bad at math when they said seventy. she was 77 when she died, or she lied so much that nobody knew what her date of birth was, and they just guessed. They knew uh, the date, the date, but they didn't know the year. A hundred years ago, uh, records were pretty loose. Uh, <laughs> anyway. I so. mean, yes, and well, yeah. So I don't know. It's just interesting to me. Um, but she was born to 73-year-old John Price and 40-year-old Whoa. wife, Ella. How is that even possible? I didn't know that in the early 1900s that you could have a child past the age of 22. Are you kidding me? Well, men can help produce offspring uh, yeah, much I mean, longer than women can. And his wife is 40. Can. But just her being 40 in that day and age is shocking. Yeah. But, but again, him being 70... Four seventy, seventy something. I, um, can we talk? Why about are you? A, better uh, question. Why are you producing children at that age? Aren't you tired? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to uh, be running after any kids? I didn't know they made boner pills for back then. <laughs> that wouldn't be surprising. Maybe he was special. It wasn't Ella's first marriage, and I highly doubt it was John's first, considering his age. John was a farmer, and while he was alive, they lived on new. Uh, New Cut Road in Lincoln County, Tennessee. Unsurprisingly, because he was in his freaking 70s in the 1900s, John died shortly after Victoria was born. And the family, which was composed of Victoria, her mother, and her brothers, Shelby and Tillman, moved to Huntsville to find work at a cotton mill, of which there were quite a few at the time around Huntsville. According to Victoria, at the age of 10, she quit school and went to work in the mills herself to help support her mother. So he, wait, uh, just a quick question. He was, um, in his seventies and he, he had a farm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there were a lot of working hands on that farm. Oh, good quote on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was just like, how does he even. <laughs> no, he wasn't doing all that. He was early he 1970s. Was Nah, That's like today's nah. hundreds. <laughs> Her brothers and plenty of other people were probably doing all the work on the farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. At that point. Sure. All right. Makes more sense. <laughs> According to Wicked North Alabama, in a 1930 census, Ella Price was listed as a 53-year-old widow, though her headstone was different. has different information regarding her age. So again, not super clear about that, but approximately 53. That's what she reported, I guess. Living well, at 313... Huh? Until recently, um, a lot of women just lied about their age. It's not like they had records for it, apparently. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want to say that you, you're you younger than you are, um, I mean, go for it if it makes you happy. But Speaking of which, one of my coworkers was trying to really butter me up for some reason. I'm not really sure why, because he was like, oh, I turned 30 this year. I was like, oh, oh, my gosh, you're such a baby. And he goes, like, you should talk. You're like, what, 31, 32? I was like... let's have a chat aren't you so sweet (laughs) other co-workers that were back there were like dude don't do that don't try to make her feel good and i was like hey he goes and then of course he backtracked because he said the same thing when before he knew my my favorite thing be bopping around my work is when i get asked uh what intern program i'm in What? <laughs> I am uh, <the> <laughs> uh, Sir, uh, sir, I'm in my mid-30s. Out of high school. Thank you. But uh, all of this to say is you can lie about your age, but your skincare routine doesn't lie about your face. So um, you can say you're in your 20s, but if you look like you're in your 50s, you're probably in your 40s. <laughs> uh, sure. That math works. Math is hard. I don't know. <laughs> It's been a long uh, day. <laughs> I'm trying to make me, a point. I know. We'll figure it out eventually. Um, and they were lit. She was living at 313 Arm Street with her daughter, now going by Victoria McClendon. Apparently, Victoria had had a very brief marriage, married it on December 14th, 1929, to a Enos McClendon that um, ended ish. I'll kind of get into it later, but they kind of separated. Um, and then she didn't know where he was and it was very confusing. Um, I do really like the name Enos. I've heard it before. Yeah. Well, apparently she ended the marriage by shooting him. Oh, um, me cute. 
I said, insert incredulous look from Montana. <laughs> I don't think, I think that's an execute. I don't know. Not a <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. So I think she died might be the beginning of a, like a romantic uh, novel that I've read. <laughs> Wait, no, that was really quick. That was a really quick story. That was the weekly newsletter in the trailer park I lived in briefly. Sorry. I got him confused. <laughs> Apparently she had been married before and it lasted a bit longer than her second did. Um, I don't really, it, the, the marriage itself lasted longer. Let's put it that way. She married Henry Pr- Presley in 1927, but according to Victoria, the ecstasy of marriage lasted all of about two and a half hours. <laughs> It's not specified no. how or why the marriage ended. I hope for his sake it was divorce and not something else. But I looked and looked and could not find anything. Not even a grave site for him. So I I have to say, I, two and a half hours is quite a long time if, if she's doing it based on like sexual activity and things like that. Kudos to Henry. Maybe. <laughs> Victoria was described as, quote, and this is from Wicked North Alabama, quote, rather plain, perhaps even harsh looking. Her lips were thin and her narrowed eyes suggested a suspicious nature. Perhaps it was hard work in the cotton mills that caused her to look older than her age. And that's where Montana's quote about how you look makes a difference. Victoria was a spinner at the Margaret Mill when she met the then- uh, no, I just, the way that they described her is so rude. Um, first off, that's how I look, but okay. Um, you do look like you have a suspicious nature. You're right. I never <laughs> noticed that. <laughs> I got a thin upper lip. <laughs> I got a decent. That's a white woman trait. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's Definitely just like, not plain. Like, why would or you describe her like that? How about um, she's. A woman. She has woman appearances? I don't know. Um, lovely lady. Uh, terrible attitude. There we go. Harsh? I, I don't know. I've seen I've seen the pictures of her. I don't know that I would say she was lovely, but... Oh. Um, okay. okay. Sometimes a person who has a harsh nature about them just automatically makes them less attractive. Well, I mean, yeah. They almost have their face in the sneer a lot of times. And that's kind of how, and I'll share pictures of, of the way that she looks. And I'm not judging everybody. You know, my husband jokes because when we first were dating, he said something about um, that I was attractive. And I said, I'm so glad that my facial features are in, arranged in such a way that it's pleasing to your eyes. Yeah. Because exactly. I have zero control over that. And he always thought that was so funny because I, it didn't phase me. This like complimenting me is not going to make me swoon. Tell me I'm smart. Tell me I've got a great, na- you know, loving nature or whatever. You appreciate me for the things I have control over. Don't appreciate me for. Yeah. But also face. the thing that you can compliment me over that I don't have control over is my butt. Okay. I mean, we, we're all happy about that. Fair. We're fair not going to lie. La- ladies and gentlemen and non-binaries. Don't lie. All, all, all the, what is it? All the he, she's and they's. Yeah, all the he, she's, and they's. You're happy when somebody compliments your butt. They can't touch it. It's true. You're happy when they compliment. You can appreciate. Mm-hmm. Keep your hands to yourself. Looking no touchy. There you go. Victoria was a spinner at the Margaret Mill when she met the then teenager Ruby Bates, who was another spinner and lived with her widowed mother Emma as well at 314 Grove Avenue. The Margaret Mill was originally known as the Huntsville Cotton Mill and was opened on Jefferson Street in 1881. It was a steam-driven operation and specialized on the production of soft-spun yarn. The name was changed to Margaret Mill in 1933. At its peak, the mill employed over 300 workers to keep the 10,000 spindles running. Once the union arrived, however, employees went on strike and the mill was, quote, brought to its knees and closed in 1932, finally being torn down completely in 1950. And here is where I take a quick note and say the unions have a place And there is a reason for them. Like everything else, greed and unethical behavior have twisted their original purpose and made it often difficult to defend certain practices. They helped put a stop to many unethical practices on its workers, and they still do that to this day. 
So don't slam something just because it's not always the right thing. Cause Lord knows ain't none of the stuff we have going on now with the right thing all the time. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I think mean, about it. 300 workers keeping 10,000 spindles running. They were being overworked. I guarantee you. And they weren't yeah, getting paid for sure. I'm all for like, um, unions, uh, don't quote me, don't go at me, and don't tell my HR department. But I'm all for it. Like, I didn't unions. say all that. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all for it. Like I said, they have, a, like, they have a purpose and they have a place. There's a reason they're there and it's important. Yeah. They sometimes it, it go too is. far. They do. Sometimes they overstep. Sometimes they step in in situations where they shouldn't be. And sometimes um, they do it not for the benefits of the workers, which is... Yeah. defeating the purpose of what they're there for. So exactly. just wanted to make that quick moment and also keep in mind that, you know, the, the mill was closed um, in 1932 is what it said, but the name was changed in 1933. So they must've reopened it briefly at least, but ended up being completely torn down in the 1950s or in 1950. So at some point when they were working there, it was probably closed for a while. So they didn't have, you know, good income from it because they probably weren't getting great income anyway. And then at some point it was closed. So they didn't get anything, you know, so times were hard. This is also during the great depression. If you don't know what that is, if you're not from America or you don't know your history, times were hard and money was not easy to come by. Food was not easy to come by. And if you were poor, it just sucked just in general. Yeah. There was no way out. Oh, Ruby was is especially bad for women who were on their own, who weren't married, didn't have men to also have other jobs and help support. Many women were working outside of the house for the first time ever. So there's a lot going on. Ruby was born to Ed, who was reported by at least one person as a violent alcoholic who abused his family and Emma. And, and she was born in 1913. Ed died sometime prior to 1930. And that left Emma alone to raise Ruby alone or Ruby along with her younger sister, Annie and her younger brother. And I couldn't find his name. Emma worked at the mill as well. So it was no surprise that Ruby and Victoria hit it off. Unfortunately, at the time they were both working at the mill, the great depression was hitting everyone hard and the income from the mill was not sufficient to support their families. So they turned to sex work to make ends meet. And it's real work. It is. That's why I called it that. Cause it's not how it was referenced in the article that I read. Yeah. I'm sure it's no surprise that Victoria seemed to have a stronger personality than Ruby. Well, Not only was she older, but she was also more experienced, having already been married twice. At this point, she and her second husband, Enos McClendon, were estranged. She shot him. I didn't say she killed him. But he probably had to it out of there. I mean, you could be <laughs> estranged from someone who's also deceased. I just want to put that out. Well... This is what was reported, so this could just be what she was saying, and he might have been dead. Who knows? But she said that she only, she didn't know where he was. She only knew that he had pursued better endeavors in New Orleans. In a grave in her backyard. <laughs> Sorry, it didn't. Well, in any case, it didn't really matter because Victoria already had a boyfriend who happened to be married. Um, wonder if he knew he was her boyfriend, though. That was my only question. Was this something that she had decided because she was seeing him that he was her boyfriend and maybe he didn't know? He was just like, there's this thing on the side. I don't I don't know. I think terminology back then was a bit loose, like the paperwork. This is very true. <laughs> this is very true. So on the night of March 23rd, 1931, Victoria and Ruth spent the night with her boyfriend and another young man. It was the next day that Victoria and Ruth decided to hop on a train dressed in coveralls over their dresses so that they could move about the train without much notice, without tickets. This train was on its way to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the women had a plan to get a job as mill workers. Obviously, because per what I said earlier, the mill was not doing well with the union and everything else, so they probably kind of saw the writing on the wall. Yeah, but also the functionality of putting coveralls over a dress, not great. Not great. No. Um, ma'am, just if you're going to steal coveralls from your boyfriend, go ahead and steal a shirt as well. Just, you know. Well, they're going to get jobs as mill workers. They had to have the appropriate attire. So maybe they could have folded their dress up and carried it with them. Maybe that would have made more sense. I don't know. Yeah. Neither here nor there. 
the train, uh, let's see, well, while neither had ever been to Chattanooga, they did have a name, Miss Brochy. When they stepped off the train, they asked where she lived, and they were told that she lived on the fourth house on 7th Street. At some point between 6 and 7 a.m., they left the boarding house and visited the local mill, which was called Thatcher Company Mill, to seek a job. Reportedly, they were hired, and at noon, they hopped on the next train back to Huntsville so that they could pack up their belongings and head back to Chat back to Chattanooga, back to Huntsville together. See, I would have caught that if I'd read this first. Evidently, the train was running late, so despite the fact that the conductor knew there were hobos on the train, he attempted to make up that time by just looking the other way. There were several white men traveling together as well as some black men, some of whom were traveling together, but not all the black men were traveling together. As it was late March, the weather was not kind and the wind added only the wind only made it worse, driving those without protection of the cars, as in the ones that had the tickets, closer and closer together until they were all together in the gondola car. At some point, a fight broke out and the young and the white young men were either pushed out or made to jump out. They quickly went to the to the authorities who reported to Scottsboro for the train to be stopped because that was the next stop. The two women were left on the train until it stopped in Scottsboro. Now, when the train was stopped by the authorities, they were made to step off as well. So now they had a choice. Tell the truth that they had been bankrupts themselves and stole a ride on the train, or they could point their finger at the men currently being detained. As I've already stated, they decided to point the black men out as attacking them and gang raping them. Mm. Now, I like to think I don't have to make this clear. But just in case, making this accusation in the 1930s was like throwing gas on an open flame. It gave the arresting officers more than enough to haul them off to the jailhouse. And the rest, well, I've already gone over that, how that went. Uh, Yes. Even today, making accusations, it's nowhere near as bad as it was, but it's still pretty bad. Making accusations like that against... um, a person of color, especially men of color, as a white woman, uh, there's this, especially when it comes to like men in pat, like white men in power, there's this innate thing. And it's not even about white uh, protecting white women. It's about control of the entire situation. It gives them an open invitation, an open excuse to attack somebody that they feel threatened by, that they want to oppress. And they're finding their control over the oppression slipping. And especially during that time, as it was steadily starting to slip, they had so much power and so much control over people of color that it w- tensions were a lot higher. A lot higher. Well, at the time, tensions were already high. So this just, like I said, it gave them the tools that they needed. But... Take for just for a moment, take into consideration how this was handled. They pointed their finger and said they attacked us and gang raped us. And they immediately arrested these men and took them to jail. Probably forcefully, probably weren't super sweet about it. Now, how is that different from when, let's be honest, when a different color man, say white, is accused? These men were treated like they were guilty the moment the finger was pointed at them. However, the women have to prove it when it's see, it yeah. seems to be the case. And in this case, here's where we're going to take a turn. So let's talk about the evidence and the testimonies. The doctor that examined the young women said there was evidence of sex, but the sperm was non-motile. There was also no evidence of a fight. In the book, it used the term mauled. There was no evidence of being mauled or resistance. No bruises, laceration, lacerations, or tears. With Ruby, it was evidence she had had sex with one man, and Victoria also had sperm inside of her, but there was not near enough evidence to show that they had been gang raped. So they could have had sex with their boyfriends the day before. Or, you know, maybe they worked the corner for a couple of hours to try to make some money. I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not judging them. I'm just saying that could have also been the case. So... Regardless, it, there was evidence of consensual, or, well, of sex, because sex is either consensual or it's rape. Um, but there's e- there was evidence of sex, but no evidence of rape, basically. Yeah. Based on their testimony, however, 
It would seem like they had been attacked, fought with everything they had, and just made it out with their lives. I might be sort of exaggerating. I couldn't find the transcripts, but it was stated that their testimony was dramatic with wild accusations thrown at the defendants and inflammatory detail. So I probably put it mildly compared to what they said. None of what they said could be proved with any evidence whatsoever because there was none. Unfortunately, in an effort to save themselves, several of the young men implicated each other. And the end result was that they were all convinced convicted and sentenced to die yeah (sighs) within two weeks of the incident by the way just want to reiterate that well that that's not surprising i guess the conviction technically the conviction of all of them was about two weeks in a day maybe two from the incident the the amount of cases that i've heard where it involves and this is a special situation because it involves young gentlemen of color And it involves the early 1900s and, you know, racism and all of that shit. But the amount of cases that I've I've heard where it it involves, like, a group of people who supposedly committed a crime, but they didn't. And typically, it's a group of people who are of color. Um, One of them will... Or on the outskirts of society. Yeah. uh, Some type of minority or oppressed group or whatever. It typically involves them. And somebody in that group will flip to try and make a deal. And And it doesn't work out. It's not always about their own safety. A lot of the times it's about coercion. Um, it's, It's simply about like giving up in the fight of saying you're not. If you can sit there for 48 hours and say you didn't do something. But if you're tired, you're hungry, you're not given, you know, a living condition that is conducive to everybody's human rights, there's a lot of things you're willing to do to make it stop. I mean, just the mental load of that. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to them per se. I'm just going to say, like, I remember when my mom used to interrogate me. And she would just ask me the same question over and over and over. And I would tell her the truth and she would just keep asking me. And at some point, the thought occurs to you, whether you do it or not, the thought enters your head of, if I just told her what she wanted to hear, she'd stop asking. I might be punished, but at least it would stop because this is just mind numbing and miserable. So that's on a very small scale comparatively. And I can't imagine having a day or two days of interrogations and just being like, I just... I just want this to stop. Yeah. Mm. So that being said, there's no evidence of that because there wasn't a lot of uh, evidence. There wasn't a lot of evidence in general in this case, but there wasn't a lot of like testimony or anything that I could find. This was a while ago. Obviously, they didn't report things very well. Fortunately, their lawyer had served them. Uh, that had served them had a drinking problem and the U.S. Supreme Court granted a retrial as well as a change of venue. Of course, by this time, they were well known as the Scottsboro Boys. They were sent to Morgan County for their next trial. Quote, during and around the time of the trial, Victoria Price vanished. Rumors flew that she'd been kidnapped or worse. Sheriff Ben Giles was notified and immediately launched an investigation into her disappearance. As it turns out, she had accompanied her mother to Tennessee to fill out paperwork for a pension. Uh, North Alabama. They worked, they worked really hard to find her. She just went out of town. Yeah. It didn't sound like she was even trying to hide. That just so happened that she was not there. She didn't Meanwhile, know a white woman goes missing. Somebody must've kidnapped her. Obviously, obviously. Because that's how it works. Meanwhile, Ruth had changed her testimony. She revealed that the whole story was a lie. At some point, she disappeared, then reappeared in Decatur to testify in the March trial of Haywood Patterson, who was the first to go on trial. At this point, Ruby looked like a completely different person. Gone was the poor mill worker. Now she wore stylish clothing that was new and her manners had improved. She was no longer friends with Victoria either, and that was apparent, as at some point, Victoria actually struck Ruth in the head with her purse as she was passing by. She probably wasn't too thrilled that Ruth changed her story either. I'm telling you, Victoria was a class act. Victoria, on the other hand, was insistent that the story was true. If, If I've learned anything from Twilight, it's that you can't trust a Victoria. 
That's a very good point. I was wondering where you were going with that. I forgot about that part. Of course, I was just thinking, of course, you brought it back to Twilight. It always goes back to Twilight. <laughs> I would. It would have been hard for me to see where that was going at any point in time in this entire thing. So I'm glad you explained it. So anyway, <laughs> she was insistent that the story was true. That being said, she apparently became more had apparently become more vague in her storytelling, and she was more than a little hostile in some of her answers. She also spread the word that her testimony could be bought if the price was right. When someone approached her with cash, she immediately turned him into the authorities. This girl, hey, you know who gets all over the place, hostile and defensive and aggressive when they're being questioned about something. People who are lying. <laughs> Imagine that. I was going to say a narcissist would approach with the truth, but same thing. I mean, narcissists, everything that comes out of their mouth, it's a fucking lie. So most of the time, you know what? Narcissists, if you're listening, sometimes you tell the truth. If you're listening, narcissist, if you're listening, you don't know your narcissist because narcissists don't know. (laughs) Narcissists, if you're listening, stop. (laughs) Stop. Oh, my God. And we're back. The defense attorney cornered Victoria on her claim that they had stayed at the boarding house in Chattanooga after a man claimed he had had sex with one of the girls in what was known then as the Hobo Jungle. Oh, my God. Still, she did not back down from her story. So she's digging her heels in more. After the trial began, George Judge Horton accidentally met up with one of the doctors who had examined the two women for evidence of rape. The doctor told the judge confidentially that there was no way that the women were for- forced to have sex, especially with multiple partners. But he was afraid that his testimony would end his career because it's going against what obviously the general public wanted to be the case. Mm-hmm. The judge felt that 12 honest men would recognize the truth, the innocence of the Scottsboro boys, and set them free. He underestimated the jury, however, and they came back with a verdict of guilty, and the punishment, again, was set at death. Were those 12 men white? Well, yeah. yeah That's a yeah, whole I'm other sure. thing. Well, they also tried to over... So, I'll go ahead and get into it since you brought it up. They also requested retrials. There were several appeals, several requests for retrials for various reasons. And one of the reasons was they couldn't be tried by a jury of their peers because black people weren't allowed to serve on juries. So they solved that problem. And I don't remember if it was the second retrial or the first. And I think there was a third, too. One of them, they solved it by putting black men into the jury pool. But oddly enough, all of them got struck for various reasons. And so it ended up being a jury of 12 white men. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's not how that works. Sorry. Nice try, though. But again, it ended up same same story. So Judge Horton carefully wrote out his 26-page brief to support the announcement he was about to make. The verdict was set aside. Judge Horton ordered another trial for Hayward Patterson and suspended the remaining trials until the public outcry had settled down. Perhaps Judge Horton knew that this move would end his political career, but he never had a moment of regret, apparently. This is all quoted from Wicked in North Alabama. The new trials were conducted I mean, by Judge William Callahan because he was fi- he, he did lose his position. So a new person was put on the trials and that judge lost his uh, seat. The new trials were conducted by Judge William Callahan, whose bias against Ruby Bates and the Scottsboro Boys was evident. I mean, you, ha- you one of the girls is now coming back and saying it didn't happen. Are you serious? 90% of the people involved in this are saying it didn't happen, and you're going off of the one. Okay. Yeah, there's no bias here. It, in any case, it, it, unsurprisingly, an they were all found guilty again. It's an excuse. It's, it, it's, it's a flimsy... It's a, it's a, it's like somebody dropped the smallest amount of oil in water and lit it on fire. Like, it was an excuse for the water to be lit on fire. It, I I don't know what type of analogy I'm trying to come up with, but basically any person in that situation, any person in the prosecution and the judicial system at that point they were looking for a reason to convict these young men because of their race i mean there's no way you can see it as anything but that 
I mean, it, it, I'm trying to deliver this with facts that I was able to find. Victoria wasn't a pleasant person to be around. Does that mean that she should be gang raped? No. But is there any evidence whatsoever to prove that what she's saying is true? No. So no. why are we going off of this one person who's abrasive as all get out when approached with questions about her story? I, if I was on that jury, if I was on the grand jury, I obviously wouldn't let it do. But I would have been laughing in that trial because it would have been so ludicrous that you think that I'm going to convict somebody with this much, with this little evidence. Like, there's nothing here. It's a testimony. That's it. You're convicting on a testimony. Yeah, and they don't convict on testimonies now, so. No, there's a lot of other, like I said, there's due process, so there's this, there's a certain time limit that has to be met in order for them to build the case, and then, you know, the defense attorney to have time to review the evidence, all of that has to be in place, and there's a reason for it, and this is one of them, honestly. These, these situations are just so frustrating, and it happened so often, like, back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, Emmett Till. That bitch is yep. dead. She died recently. Yay. Boo, boo, boo. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it just, it happened so often back then that it, it almost seemed like it was some kind of club or, oh wait, it was white supremacy. Oh fuck. I forgot. Never mind. It was a club. Sorry. Go on. Well, a very exclusive club. <laughs> there was a march of 3,000 people in Washington, D.C. in early March 1933 in an effort to bring light to the Scottsboro Boys' plight and in an effort to get President Roosevelt's attention to the matter. Ruby Bates and Hayward, Haywood Patterson's mother were in attendance. Unfortunately, Pre- President Roosevelt was unable to see them, and his representative took the marchers that told the marchers that it was a matter for the courts, not Congress. Yeah. So in other words, sorry, we're not going to help you. Well, okay. You know what? So if an orange president can, uh, never mind, I'm not going to do it. Let's not go there. (laughs) Now let's talk about the accused and convicted. I'm going to take this straight from the Wicked North Alabama book because it had the most description I could find of the young men. Um, Because even the ACLU website didn't really have a lot of... um, brief highlighted information about each one Hayward Patterson got the most attention it seems um and I wonder if that was partly because of his mom being so involved but Hayward Patterson was tried four times and spent 16 years in prison he was released but got into a bar fight in 1950 and was arrested for murder when a man in the fight was killed he was convicted of manslaughter in his third trial but died of cancer in 1952 less than one year after his return to prison Charles Weems, 19 at the time of his arrest, was the oldest of the Scottsboro Boys. He was paroled in 1943 and moved to Atlanta where he led a quiet life. The oldest was 19. Keep that in mind. Clarence Norris was paroled in 1944 but violated his parole by moving out of state. He was arrested and paroled again. In 1976, he received a pardon from the Alabama governor, George Wallace. He died in New York in 1989 at the age of 76, and he was the last of the Scottsboro Boys to die. Andy Wright, also 19 at the time of his arrest, was paroled in 1944. He married that same year, but in violation of his parole, he left the state and was arrested and imprisoned again. He was released again in 1950 and was later accused of raping a 13-year-old girl, but this time he was acquitted by an all-white jury. Ozzie Powell was 16 when he was arrested. He was shot in the head when he when he stabbed a deputy with a pen and sustained permanent brain damage. He was paroled in 1946 and moved back to Georgia. He was he continued to be in prison with brain damage. Yep, I swear to God. Olin Montgomery was 17 in 1931. He was released from prison in 1937 and bounced from one job to another, never staying in one place for any period of time. 13-year-old Eugene Williams was released in 19 in July of 1937. So he was, I guess he was 13 when it happened by the time I guess he turned 14 because one of them said 14, maybe the ages are wrong, but still 13 or 14 is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Willie Robertson, 17 in 1931, had an extremely painful case of syphilis at the time of the alleged rapes. 
He walked with a cane and was finally released in 1937, at which time he moved to New York. So that also kind of shows that that did not happen. Yeah. I mean. That wasn't brought up. Mm -hmm. Roy Wright, 13-year-old brother of Andy Wright, said that he saw the other boys rape the girls, hoping to gain his release. He was also released in 1937, so he had just as long of a prison sentence as the majority of them joined the army, and got married. His end was as tragic as his early life, however. In a jealous rage, he shot his wife to death and then killed himself August of 1952. Mm. Needless to say, this case affected so many lives, and it threw away the lives of these young men. While Ruby tried to spend her time attempting to make up for the story she and Victoria had told, the damage had already been done. Ruth did what she could to make things right. She toured the U.S. speaking for the International Labor Defense, which along with the NAACP, NAACP, I can't, I, every time I see it, I always say it that way, helped fund the defense team for the Scottsboro Boys. She also worked in New York around 1934 in a spinning factory until she received a diagnosis of tuberculosis. She then moved in with her mother, and is, was, who was still living in Huntsville, and died in Washington in 1976. Two days before she died, Alabama Governor George Wallace pardoned Clarence Norris. Victoria Price married her third husband, Frank Rowland, in Lincoln County, Tennessee in the 1940s. This marriage again didn't last, and she married for her fourth and final time to Dean Street. Victoria Street died October 17, 1982, in Huntsville Hospital. She had been a resident of Quarters Crossroads near Flint, Flintville, Tennessee, in the years prior to her death. And I want to end on this quote because it was, it, it's a, it's just a very good summary of all of this. Um, and it's, again, from that Wicked North Alabama. Quote, today the Scottsboro Boys incident is recognized for what it really was. The senseless conviction of innocent young men whose lives were ruined by the accusation of two self-serving women caught up in the glamour of notoriety. End quote. Yeah. And when they made the accusation, it wasn't even about being notable. It was about getting out of some type of trouble by getting somebody else in trouble. It's you before the in the other direction. And they pointed the finger in, in a direction where they knew, they knew the consequences of what they were doing. You can't tell me. They knew that that the attention was immediately going to be diverted to the other side and they were not even going to be questioned. Yeah. Did you notice that they still never noticed the fact that they didn't have tickets and they weren't supposed to be on that train? And why were they on that train to begin with? That was never brought up or mentioned. Yeah, exactly. It's a reason for them to make up something, point the finger at a minority group that's going to be violently harmed in the process and have their entire lives ruined because of it. And this is what... This is what frustrates me so much when we talk about you know, um, when you bring up like crime and things like that, and a lot of the times, um, racist people will say, well, it's because of the black community and blah, blah, blah. And things like that. They have more crimes against each other and yada, yada, yada. Well, first off, you're going to run in the same group as what you've been assigned to. And black people have been assigned to their own group of demographic. So violence is going to be high in their group as well as it's also high in the white on white crimes. But the problem that I have in this situation is the after effect of what occurred with these young men. And that is violence afterwards. There was more criminal things that happened and it's, it's a generational oppression that you see in an oppressed community where you are constantly holding them down. If they had not been in that position in the first place, a lot of them would have gone on to live successful, fulfilling lives. But because they were put in that position, just like you see, there's not a great amount of wealth in the black community because of things like redlining and ways that we found to oppress that group. That was a way to continue the cycle of oppression 
and continue a cycle of violence and criminal behavior when they shouldn't have been in that situation to begin with. And that's what's so frustrating to me. They got out, but at what cost? I mean, they were between the ages of 13 and 19. Those are some of your most impressionable and and important years of your life. And many of them spent their entire teenage life and at the very least their young 20s, mid-20s, up to their 30s. That's important time where you're developing and you're learning and you're becoming the person that you're going to be. And it was spent in prison for a crime they didn't commit. So not only are they in a, a, a violent place, because let's face it, it's violent and it's dangerous, but they're also having that bitter feeling of I'm here and I didn't do anything to deserve this. And I know that I got dealt a shitty hand and no one's going to take care of me. Nobody's going to protect me. I have to take care of myself. It's not a wonder why they had problems. Some of them had problems after they left. Yeah. I mean, that's how you handle situations, right? When you are in a bad situation, when you're raised in an abusive household, you have a few options. You can end up being becoming exactly how you were raised and being just like your parents. You can go the opposite direction and be, develop into a very kind and loving person or and, 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 and be healthy and have healthy relationships. Or you can go somewhere down the middle and live a traumatized life where you're stuck in this place where you're not them, but you're not happy and healthy either. You're just stuck in the middle and you're stuck in this toxic environment that you've put yourself in. That's the, that's what happened here. You had a couple of them that left and they went on to have happy or I don't know about happy, but they went on to have quiet lives. You never heard about yeah, them again. Other ones had very violent endings or tragic endings. So it's like their life was taken away from them. Some of their most important years were taken away from them and there's no justice in that. Even if you release them, that's not justice. Even if you yeah. pardon them, that's not justice. No, it's not. And to speak from my own personal experience in my early 20s, mid-20s, I made a lot of fuck-ups. Made a lot of fuck-ups. Samantha was there for them. I, however, which is what is different than the group of young men, I had the privilege of being white. So in a lot of ways, I got off pretty cleanly in the things that I did. And I also had the benefit of having a generation of privilege. These men, when they came out, they were already criminals in the minds of everyone around them. Not, not, sim not simply because of what they did, but because of their demographic, because of the color of their skin. And so you you put on that extra layer of like oppression on top of what has already been done to them. And there was, I'm surprised that some even led a quiet life after that. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't without doing. I'm sure they had to put in a lot of effort to do that yeah. and isolate themselves in order to get that way. So, so yeah, this is the, this is, that's the case. I don't have any other factual information. There is a lot of information about this case. I could easily have made this into two episodes, but I just did not have the bandwidth mentally to handle going into more detail because after reading about it, it just made me so upset. But I encourage anybody who wants to know anything else about this. The ACLU has an excellent article that goes into a lot of depth for this, and I'll link it in the show notes. Um, but it gives a lot more information about the retrials and the appeals process and how much it took, how many times they were retried. I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous. I just couldn't go through it. Um, and then Wicked North Alabama, I've already said it before, but it's a great book. It goes through a lot of historical um, true crime stuff from North Alabama. And she really tried to do a very good job of being as factual as possible. So um, I highly recommend that. And then everything else that I got was from Britannica.com. So we'll have those all in the show notes um, as always. But well, I think you did a great this job. Was, this uh, was just a high, this was a high level. Trust me. Still at a high level. I don't know. I, I think if you had gone into more details, I mean, you know how I am. And especially when it comes to like, so, you know, 
basic human fucking rights, I get really pissed off. So I don't know that it would have been beneficial. I mean, it's already an hour, so. Yeah, for us to have gone deep diving into it, because I would have, a, a two-parter, <laughs> okay, it probably would have been a three-parter. Let's be real here. Uh, I mean, it's, there's just a lot of controversial topics in here. I mean, you're talking about um, false accusation of rape from a woman, which is a controversial topic just because that's what they use as an excuse all the time that, yeah. oh, but women falsely report all the No, they don't do it all the time. Um, but this is one instance where it was very obvious that it happened because one of them retracted their statement. You obviously have the false arrest, conviction and imprisonment of a group of young white men that didn't or young black men that didn't deserve it. And it was obvious that they didn't deserve it. Um, and then you have the sex work. They were sex workers. That's one of the reasons why they did point the finger because I think they didn't want to be busted for that too, because that would have gotten them in trouble. And how often does that happen when women don't report things or report other things to get themselves out of trouble when that shouldn't even be an issue to be perfectly yeah. honest. No. Um, so yeah, it's just a lot going on with this one case. And I was like, mm, this there's all the emotions, all of the feelings yes. right now. I have a lot of emotions. I do want to cry. And I'm not sure if it's because of the case or if it's because of Tugger. But uh, it's probably a mix of both. Because I, when I get frustrated, I cry. And this that whole I had never actually heard of this. So this was oh, okay. Yeah. And I, when, you, when you said how many it was and what it was about at the jump of it, I was like, I hadn't heard of this. Like, at all. Well, it's actually a very famous case for a long time. So, I was just kind of surprised you hadn't heard of it. Nope. Hadn't heard of it. So, you, you told me something new today. How about that? Look at you. You, you learned something. Your, your brain grew some wrinkles today. Oh, man. It's probably the wrinkliest brain <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Those wrinkles get smoothed out pretty regularly with all the stuff you forget. That's true. That's true. But that good job. I mean... Super good job. It, you you know this is my passion. So when it comes to unsolved, uh, missing, and missing and exploited people, and anything that has to do with like the wrong wrongfully convicted, like that is, I'm like we gotta do so. I want to like I want to shake up the whole world. I want to change everything, and I know I can't do it. Well, the first, in my opinion, one of the first steps is talking making people it, yeah. aware of it yeah so and i agree um and i'm glad you're here to help me do that because you keep more of a level head than i do most of the time <laughs> <laughs> not always uh, but i do try because i can i can spiral for sure but wow no. wow 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 uh i'm gonna look at the articles whenever you send them to me because now i'm like oh my god now i need to know every little thing about it i know <sighs> Hello, obsession. Uh, it's called hyperfixation. Obsession. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. But good job. Um, where can our listeners find us on the uh, socials? They can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Reaper Tales Podcast. Uh, what about email? You can email us at reapergals at reapertales.com. Um, you can email us your show suggestions. You can email us just to talk to me. I recently put our email on my phone. I didn't realize I could do that. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm saying that, look, listen, I, I have my work email on my phone, but to put our podcast email on there, it has to go in the same app. So I was worried about doing it because I was worried about like sending an email from the Reaper gals email to work. That'd be really awkward. Yeah. But then I was looking at it and I was like, oh, it would be like completely separate. Like I couldn't respond. Yeah. So I went ahead and added it. Uh, some people know now. <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> I respond more quickly because I get it on my phone. Um, so yeah. You don't have to check a separate separate thing yeah, yeah it's it's not checking it you know a couple of times a week now it's like when i get it i'm like oh hey what's up <laughs> what's going on <laughs> uh what else what else oh yeah uh like rate review subscribe leave a worded review if possible um all those things you know you know what to do 
I mean, we don't, what are we, we're going to tell you how to do this stuff. You guys know how to, what to do. Yeah. You guys are smart. You're smarter than us in a lot of ways. Well, um, Montana just learned how to put the email on her phone. I did. So. I'm a millennial and I didn't know how to put an email on my phone. Listen, oh, my goodness. We'll get there. We're working on it. Life is a thing. Um, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. Um, we appreciate you. We love you. And until next time, um, okay, bye. The reaper will come for us all.